Welcome to the BG Podcast, conversations at the intersection of business, community, and public policy from the Austin metro and around Texas. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com slash podcast and on iTunes and Google Play. We know you. Hello, this is AJ Bingham, CEO of Bingham Group, and our guest today is Terry Broussard-Williams. Uh, welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. I, I was smiling there because uh, you, Terry and I have been colleagues and friends for several years. I, mean, I think it's just right when I was getting started at the Capitol, um, and you know, we were kind of catching up on just some pro- kind of this, the, the development of, uh, of my business, Bingham Group, and also the things she's she's been doing um, since, you know, since I met her with, not, with the American Heart Association. And we're going to get to some of those um, other adventures as well. But before we get to that, Terry, I want you to introduce yourself and talk about, you know, kind of the full suite of things that you do. I know one, <laughs> All one, the things. one title doesn't do you justice. <laughs> All the things. So I have been here in Austin since 2008, which seems like yesterday. Um, But I consider myself a social impact strategist, a lobbyist, and philanthropist. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hashtag team too much, hashtag all the things. But I just feel like in today's world, if you want to do good through policy and have true impact, you can't just be one thing. Um, Experts are great, but you have to really know how to solve um, a problem through systems change. And so Mm -hmm. I really pride myself in understanding that whole system. We're gonna to get to more talk about later in the show about all those extra thing, all the things you're doing in those areas, right? And there, you know, it's uh, for those who follow Terry. I mean, they know they're very they're, they're they are significant. Um, but I want to open up with how we met, and you at the time in '08, you were with the American Heart, Heart Association, mm-hmm. and I I think you know I was still at the Capitol, and then started I got into the lobby two years later in 2010. Um, one of the biggest misconceptions I've seen on my end, just in conversations kind of with the public about lobbying, you know, when we're, I'm a, I've always been a contract lobbyist, is the idea of, you know, the one question always comes up when you say you're a lobbyist, so who do you lobby for? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, or ha- that, and then also, have you lobbied for something you don't believe in? And when I tell people it's, it's, it's a, you know, this is a, it's a business, but there's, for any kind of interest out there, any kind of interest, there's usually one person who represents that entity or interest, yeah. whether it's a contract situation or someone internal. And I give examples like, well, you know, like American Heart Association. I mean, you have dream, I mean, big groups that you think are quote unquote, I mean, they are good, yeah. but in the spectrum of policy, right? There, you have folks who, who advocate at the government level, local to state to federal mm-hmm. for those groups. And so I want to get to that, just kind of the, your experience as a, as a lobbyist with, or advocate lobbyist yeah. with American Heart Association. Um, we could tie into that your path to being in the lobby as a, a woman of color, especially. Yeah. Because we know, we, we talk about this all the time. There's not that many of us anyway. So, you know, men or women of color in this, this profession. And I think it's important to have an opportunity to just talk about those paths through there. It's a really fun profession. Sure. Um, there's a whole lot to unpack in what you just said. And I'll start at the top. But, of course, when you tell people you're a lobbyist, they want to know first who do you lobby for and what do you represent? And um, more times than not, when I did work at the American Heart Association, I was there for 16 years out of my almost 20-year lobby career, there's always like a sigh of relief, like, 
okay, you're a good guy. (laughs) Yes, I do lobby for an entity that does good in the world. But um, just because a lobbyist is on the other side does not mean that they are a bad human being, right? Um, We are all professionals first. And then we select who we want to represent as a client or as a full-time staffer, which um, before I get into a little bit about... um, why I did choose the Heart Association and how that developed me as a lobbyist. I just want to talk a little bit about the different types of lobbyists because a lot of people don't get that. So you would might have someone like me where I served as a government relations executive at the Heart Association for more than a decade. I was the manager of a lot of staff lobbyists, people who were in the field working. So they are the people who are at the Capitol day in, day out um, lobbying. At one point in Texas, we had 13 people in the Capitol. They were all internal. All internal staff lobbyists, Mm -hmm. we had 13. And then we had external people who are contract lobbyists, people like you, who help us. Um, They might have relationships we don't have. They might be extra hands on a bill if that um, issue-based advocacy campaign is something that's really large. Sometimes you just need extra help. Um, Or they might even have, um, they might be experts on a particular budget article or um, issue and department. So you bring in pitch hitters um, and those external people definitely help. And we have on average about four to six every every session. So um, I was, like I mentioned, the government relations executive at the Heart Association um, who oversaw all those internal and external lobbyists for about 13 years. And, um, you know, at the time, I, when I first started, my team was four staff lobbyists, one contract lobbyist, and then we grew to being 32 staff at one point with about 30 contractors. Um, so there's just so many different types of roles you can have in this work, which really gets me to why I love working at the Heart Association, um, and I did for so long. You know, there are only nine like entities that lobby in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't know that. And Cause, oh, I mean, the, it's the organizational ability to do it, and it's the money. The money. Oh, my gosh, the money. It is so such an expensive um, investment, but mm-hmm. it is truly an investment. And so out of those nine entities that lobby in all 50 states, only three are nonprofits. Who are those? Do you know? Mm-hmm. The NRA, NRA, the AARP, mm-hmm. and the American Heart Association. Yeah. So the AHA had people in every single state um, covering, you know, all the policy issues. But um, for those of you who are interested in becoming a lobbyist, you know, we definitely, there's a, a large need for people like AJ who are contractors. And a lot of times, if you're a person of color, it's like the easiest way to break in the field. But I'd also encourage you to look at those larger organizations like an AARP or an American Heart Association or even um, the American Cancer Society, because those organizations are lobbying at the local, state, and federal level. And a lot of times you get exposure to all three of those things, um, you know, so that you really can decide what you love best. And you're also going to get exposed to ordinances, regulations, um, just all the different pieces that are needed to, again, create that systemic change that change for good mm-hmm. and just the personalities of the states too because mm-hmm. i know your coverage what was your overall I mean, mo- most times yeah. right with a nonprofit or you know for-profit company you know private comp- corporations 
that have lobby teams, they'll have them broken up into regions that right. operate like southeast and mm-hmm. northeast and such. But what was the what were the states you covered? Yeah. So I got my start in the what was then the Southeast affiliate. So I was the staff lobbyist on the ground in Louisiana for about five, four or five years. Um, and I really was a part of a team that was everything from Louisiana up to Tennessee, over to Georgia and down to Florida. So those um, were, it was quite a large territory, 11 states. Um, Then when I was managing what was the Southwest affiliate, I had Arkansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, um, and Wyoming. And I always pride myself in knowing those in alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and so now I do some lobby work um, that extends to Missouri and Kansas. So I just, I've learned like the personalities and the heartbeats of all those states. Um, The basics are the same, you know, you can drop me off in any cafeteria and I will fare in any state just fine. Mm -hmm. But um, knowing which state you can move a little faster um, or you might have to like really spend a couple of days just saying hello before you even talked on an issue. You really have to understand that the heartbeats of those states before you get into the work. Yeah, I think one of the things, and I've, you know, I've only operated in Texas, but in reading about other states or talking to colleagues who operate other states, you know, this the pace of their sessions come with that. Oh part, gosh. Right? So the legislative sessions for those who aren't familiar with Texas's uh, government. Um, our, our Senate and House come in session every odd year, so the next being in January of 2021, and it'll run for 140 days, I think ending May 31st, 2021 mm-hmm. of that year. And in that time, they have to, I mean, the only thing they have to do by law is pass a budget. Um, which but, is a big deal. Which is a big deal. <laughs> they, they mainly get it done, but in theory, but they, but um, they're, they're passing laws and trying to create legislation is twofold, I found, either touch up stuff from the last legislative session mm-hmm. two years ago or now trying to figure out things that are they, and the budget for the next two yeah, years yeah coming ahead yeah and I, it's, it, the, the stakes are higher here the other, yeah. the other stakes so it's other states rather you see they have either I mean, California has basically a year round session right um, some states might have sessions every like they have a, a long session one year then a short mm-hmm. session for the budget I can give you the right? whole oh, rundown sure. well, this, that part can be right I think on the lobby side whether it's a for profit non profit is probably uh, like getting that kind of like knowing those like running different the, kinds of races mm-hmm, right like getting the, okay this one we gotta move fast because we really only have three days and next year it can happen but yeah. it's here you know it's critical too because this, you know it's the span of time to get it to, if you don't get it done it's really two and a half yeah, years yeah exactly well okay so the I know too much about this, but um, some states, you you will have a long session where you will address all issues. Um, And sometimes in those long sessions, they will not allow you to address anything that's of the budget. But Louisiana... In theory, though, right? Yeah, in theory. There's always uh, a way. Articles, writers. So we are recording this on on March the 12th, and um, Louisiana just started its session um, on Monday. Today is Thursday, and they are in... um, a long session so you know you will have um, the opportunity to address all issues um, and in a budget year you will get like up to five bills that are not related to the budget um, and their sessions are they pretty are very similar in the, the structure and the time so the pace is the same but then you move over to the west to a state like New Mexico um, their long sessions gonna be about 40 days their mm-hmm. short session that budget sessions gonna be 30 days you better believe that's hardly any time to get anything done yeah. um, so when people you know they hear that Texas is in session every other year and 
like a little trivia, um, last time I checked, there are only six states in the country that have sessions every other year. Um, I tell people it is fast and furious because imagine if you had to balance a checkbook for a state the size of Texas, which is, you know, the second largest economy, um, and you had to do it every other year, mm-hmm. you know? So and predict what will happen, what's going to Right, happen. you know, and, and also um, create a cushion for, you know, for something like, a, you know, we would not want this to happen, but another major disaster or mm-hmm. just anything. Um, it's just a, a lot of, a lot of work. Yeah, and so I don't think we touched on it, but what was your path? I mean, so mm-hmm. prior to joining with AHA, um, I believe you're a reporter, mm-hmm. right? But it was, it just, what was yeah. your path? So I um, actually started working when I was 16, um, working in a television newsroom. Literally would get checked out for the day, had my own um, photographer, and we would go shoot stories. I was a teen reporter at KOFY. TV time. It's in Lafayette, Louisiana. Yes. And if you go to my website, there's always a shameless plug, right? TerryBWilliams.com. If you go all the way to the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) But you go all the way to the bottom of the page, you will actually see some footage of me um, from my teen reporter days. And one just one of the my most favorite moments doing that was I got to interview the attorney general, who was then Richard Ayub, on the dangers of teen drinking and driving and click it or ticket. Um, but I think that was the very moment that I fully understood that I loved politics. Um, but I was always drawn to like giving people information so that they can make decisions about their community, which is why I went to journalism school. So I um, went to Louisiana State University, go Tigers. With an X. With an X, <laughs> G-E-A-U-X. And um, worked the whole time I was in school. So I worked at WBRZ, Channel 2 News in Baton Rouge, and um, worked on the morning show and really cut my teeth. And so I think that was how I learned to make a message very succinct, which is something we have to do in the lobby world. Um, I also had to write news scripts really fast. So you know, there are a lot of lobbyists that can't crank out a, a one-pager. Give me 15 minutes. I can make a one-pager. <laughs> um, you spend some time writing television news, and you learn how to do that quickly. But worked in television um, at three different stations. My last television station was um, WIS-TV in Columbia, South Carolina, and decided to get out of the business, um, which was a a very personal moment for me. But again, I really wanted to give people information that could like help them transform their communities and wanted to do that at a pace that was more stealth than I could at the newsroom. Mm -hmm. And really just... Um, came to terms with my desire for wanting to be in the policy world and having impact through the sector that we call, you know, politics, um, and started talking to two mentors. Um, One is now a a federal judge, and she has been incredible to me my entire adult life, young um, adult life. And they told me, like, if you're going to get into politics, you have to know how to fundraise. And that was something that no one had ever mentioned to me. Mm-hmm. So I lucked out and worked at the South's largest children's museum, Adventure Children's Museum in Columbia. We were building a capital campaign and just got to meet people from all over the state, which really translated into me having that foundation that I needed to get into politics. And so almost a year exactly to the date, I got a phone call um, and someone told me that this incredible man named Alex Sanders was looking for a press secretary. And I was all of 23. 
And um, it sounded like a dream job. Who would not want to be a press secretary for a U.S. Senate candidate mm-hmm. that was running for Strom Thurmond seat, the first time Strom Thurmond seat was ever open, um, and get to like hang out with the candidate and travel the state. So I interviewed for the job, and to this day, I you know Judge Sanders and Zoe, his wife, still don't know why they picked me, but I got that extreme honor and privilege to serve on his campaign. And we lost to Lindsey Graham, um, who, if you are in the political field, you definitely know who Lindsey Graham is. It was 2002 midterm elections. And um, I didn't have a job. For the first time since I was 16, I didn't have a job. And so I turned to another incredible mentor who um, is now an elected official and said, what am I gonna do? And he said, you are gonna be a great lobbyist. And I looked at him and literally the words out of my mouth was like Elle Woods. <laughs> if you've ever seen Legally Blonde 2, Elle saved the dog in D.C. Have mm-hmm. you seen it? I can't, I can't confirm or deny, but it's been, it's been years. You're a smart man. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets back to a question that you ask. And, you know, I always prime the story this way because I had not been to a state capitol since fifth grade. And between fifth grade and the time I was 23, I had not returned to a state capitol. I had not been there, which meant I had not, never, ever seen a lobbyist. The only lobbyist that I knew was Elle Woods. And so many people in this profession, you know, they are interns at the capitol. They know that they want to be a lobbyist early in age, and they go to, you know, incredible institutions like the LBJ School for Public Affairs because they know this is what they want, to do, want it to do. Um, and I never had that exposure. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a small town in Louisiana um, and just never had that exposure. And so I looked out, you know, three months after that day, I had a badge and I was walking the halls at the Capitol as a lobbyist. Um, you know, it was a very small lobby role for the Southwest portion of the state working on smoke-free laws. And the way that I got that job was because they needed someone to do media training. Yeah. You know, and it, you get your end. Yeah. Well, I think, too, with... Because uh, I've had this talk on some other, other on past episodes and other, other shows about past pathways mm-hmm. to the lobby. And unlike... I think unlike law school or being a lawyer or you know a doctor, the, the tracks are kind of set. You do these, these, right. these things. Graduate, bar, so on. The lobby, at least... I think the convention, the conventional wisdom, yeah, you go to the Capitol, be a staffer. That's the conventional path. Right. And that's what was told to me. I mean, I I met some lobbyists my last year of law school and had it was had been a policy major in undergrad at Wake Forest, but ne- it just hadn't. I never really had thought about lobbying, right? You mm-hmm. knew about it kind of like maybe like Jack Abramoff. Jack <laughs> probably more Jack Abramoff, I think. But, you know, you know, House of, it was a house, house of Cards that come out. Yeah, yeah. so there's no Remy Danton, which I get, I get compared to all the time. And I'll, he's really getting a like, but he's a cool guy. So, um, and great client list, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, the, it was interesting what you said about, you know, you need to be a great fundraiser because yeah. those are tools. It's almost like I think people are focused on, I mean, obviously lobbyists you know, have relationships but I think more importantly, you know, the process, right? Mm-hmm. But the fundraising aspect is something that um, I I know sets kind of the elite lobbyists right. apart from the rest, whether it's your personal fund. Really, it's a mix of your personal giving, but really it's your, it's your network, including your client list, that can be brought to bear for, yeah. for donations. And those things are for fundraising. And those things have a big impact. And then, again, people have their views on that, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the system we're in, right? Yeah. And, but it, it, it's, it is a tool... A strong tool for an effective lobbyist. Well, I want to even break that down even further, right? I, I get asked the question all the time. I think what, why I was able to succeed 
You know, because when I was in Louisiana, um, I never lost a bill as a staff lobbyist, ever. Um, and I knock on wood, that was a knock on, on something like wood. <laughs> but um, I think it goes back to my time in the TV station taught me how to speak succinctly, taught me how to really deliver information that was really large and detailed in a simple way. That is a skill you have to have as a lobbyist. My time as a fundraiser taught me how to make cold calls, right? Taught me how to talk to people I never met and only knew on the phone. It taught me how to fundraise, which to your point, you know, if you can fundraise for a candidate, you're doing well. But even beyond that, it taught me how to sell. Mm -hmm. It taught me how to sell an idea. I worked on a capital campaign. We didn't have a building. We just had some pictures, you know, some foam this Virginia board. League? No, this was in Columbia, South Carolina gotcha. at the Children's Museum. So I was selling an idea and a vision that did not exist. And that was my role as a fundraiser, but that's my role as a lobbyist. When I walk in with a, a draft of a bill, mm -hmm. it's a vision of something that does not exist. Um, so you definitely need to know how to, you know, ask for money and get that check. But fundraising also teaches you that. And so um, I think every step of the way, even when I worked in press, you know, um, again, being able to sell a candidate, but also being able to create followership for that, that candidate, which was something that I did in my role as press, um, is also a skill needed as a lobbyist. So for those of you that are listening and that want to be a lobbyist, definitely how do you communicate messages succinctly? How do you build a rapport with someone you might never see and sell that vision and create followership? You really have to be able to um, have people want to be a part of that vision and show that they will show up and they care for it. Mm -hmm. I think underlying all those two, mm -hmm. I hope you would agree, it's the idea of um, you have to have a hostile mentality oh, in yes. all the right ways. In terms <laughs> of well, your point about when, when an opportunity there are times when opportunities we've presented plainly to you as, mm -hmm. you know, I, Terry, I want you to come work at Bingham Group and here's the, the offer, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. Other times, you have to create opportunities. Absolutely. And a lot of times in our business, I mean, yeah, there are times when there's going to be those layups where, man, like, I'm a, you're going to you know, get the tailwinds of this. But you're always, I think the biggest thing for us, it's you were reading it and analyzing information, other intelligence and, and our past experiences to try to divine or create opportunities for our clients for our own firms to grow, mm -hmm. right? But that's a hustle thing. If yeah. you're relying on just reading the news and kind of being passive, you got to really be in it and like constantly meeting, meeting casual friends or yeah. colleagues, taking in information and just, I mean, that's the biggest challenge for me is time of the day. That's why I get up so early because it's just, we're at the time really yeah, same here. inputs, right? 4 a.m. every mm -hmm. day. But I, I definitely, I definitely agree it's hustle. I call it something a little different. Um, I say that I subscribe to two, two theories. One is faith and fortitude. I, faith, I know um, that there is a way. There's always, always a way. Um, I'm going to figure it out. Fortitude is not being afraid to fail, but knowing I'm probably not going to fail because mm -hmm. I'm going to figure it out because there's always a way, right? So with faith and fortitude, I'm going to be all right. So the, the people that I see that struggle in this field are the people that are afraid to take risks. People that don't believe in themselves as a person that could solve a problem or figure it out. Um, you know, so therefore they, they lack the confidence. And you can sense that in a lobbyist. And that makes a difference if you're going to sell that vision and I'm going to believe it or if not. Um, and also people that, you know, they give up. Like, you know, I've worked with staff where they something is really complicated or messy or um, it looks like on the surface we're going to lose and they give up. 
those people will never succeed. We will, we will not see them back the mm-hmm. next next session. But if you um, if you just really subscribe that you are going to figure it out and there's a way, like someone will always want to work with you. Um, who wants to work with the person that gives up too soon? Yeah, I feel like I mean even you know when the gap when the well when the gavel kind of rings in the dice, there's a mm-hmm. maybe there's a pause, but there's always you know there's a future opportunity at some point. But you know in terms of you know in my end right until it's gavel, it's like it's not over until the votes are taken. That's right. For both ways of it too. It, People like because one of those things I think one of our job as well it's to be you you know you're. You, you got to be on top of it up until that vote is taken, and including any amendments to try to get in there or not. I know it's Everything. not over till signing day, right? Any deliberative yeah. body until they finalize it with that vote, and you saw what they're voting on, yeah. you, you're there. You're and there sometimes you could still change it, right? Yeah, that's why you got to make sure you're there. Yeah, because that's when I've seen pe- the surprises happen when you think things are going to go a certain way. People people assume things were going a certain way because promises yeah. were made, whatever what, whatever it may be, and you know, situations is fluid up until that gavel comes down. Yeah, you can ask for a vote on reconsideration. Mm-hmm. You can sneak something in in another bill or a line Substitutes. item. You know, you can even if your 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 opponent's bill makes it over the finish line, you could still ask the governor for a veto. There is always always a way, mm-hmm. um, and it is not over until it's over. And even rulemaking too. Yeah, <laughs> like there is there are so many different ways to make it happen, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, so I agree with you 100 on that. So I want to move to talking about one of your other endeavors, Movement Maker uh, mm-hmm. com. Yes. Um, but can you just go on to detail about that? So I think it's somewhat explanatory, but what yeah. was the impetus for that, and what do you, you yeah. just been going on for like a few years now? I love talking about this. Um, and I think it goes back to you know me being the person that is receiving on the other end, you should be a lobbyist, and not really ever having met anyone that did that work and also just having some incredible experience experiences along um, my my life and so about three years ago I created movementmakertribe.com and it is a social impact flat platform that encourages people um, to be a leader who will take a moment and turn into a movement because everyone and anyone can be a great leader and so I really want to introduce people to policy and philanthropy and, and mission building or movement making um, so that they can create the change that they want to see in their community I, I often say, you know, people, they off, they complain about Paul Ryan when he was in power or Nancy Pelosi because they are the Speaker of the House and they feel like the Speaker directs things. But you are the Speaker of your house because you can control what happens in your backyard, in your community. So on Movement Maker Tribe, we give people the tools, the how and why to start a movement so that they can be successful in whatever they choose to do in their community. Got it. Is that type? You have, is, is Firestarter part of that too? Yeah. Okay. So I I say people that you know see movements, things that others ignore, are Firestarters. Mm-hmm. They are people that are fearless, that are you know confident. They are people that want to do good. Um, and if you are a Firestarter, you can ignite a movement in your community. Um, so there are definitely tons of tools for people that are Firestarters. Um, and in my my new book, that is a going to come out any day now um find your fire i break it down in the fire starter formula like the four things that are needed to consistently build a movement and those are all when I mean, you can get to those all on your site right yes mm-hmm. so if you go to movementmakertribe.com, movementmakertribe.com sign up um you'll get a free downloadable worksheet that will give you the fire starter formula and will allow you to begin to see what is needed to start a movement 
All right. Well, Terry Rossard Williams, thank yes. you for your time. Well. Thank you. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, checking the book out. We'll have the information in the show notes. Yay. And uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. And keep doing what you're doing, AJ. You are inspiring fire starters everywhere. Thank you for listening to today's BG podcast. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com podcast and iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe to stay current on future posts.